have I talked to you about the Persona series or have you played it at all? I have not played it. It sounds awesome. It's so good. Each game has a different way of delving into the psyche of various characters. And then you have to face your shadow self. And then once you accept your shadow, it turns into your persona. (laughs) You get to adopt personas that are represented by like mythological figures and gods and things. It's a very Japanese take on that sort of psychological school of thought. But it's it's really cool. It's, It's super up your alley, I think. I really like depth psychology and Jung, Western mythology, mystery tradition material being filtered through Japanese culture. It's good shit. Yeah, it's great. Christianity in games like Final Fantasy, El Shaddai. And then you'll get ones that it's just, it's like, it's called Messiah because they couldn't call it Jesus, but it's clearly <laughs> like a crucified being. And the description is like, it exists in many traditions. Dot, dot, dot. It's actually the dude to the left of Jesus in the traditional crucifixion <laughs> portrayals. Not the thief that was like, can't you see this is the Messiah? But the one that's like, look, we're dying right now. Yeah. Can't can you please have your fever dream later? Yeah, can you shut up for a minute? I'm trying to suffer to death. I'm trying to get through this as quickly as possible. Yeah. <laughs> Um, it is really interesting how it gets interpreted into this anime fantasy aesthetic. I mean, it's kind of like the way we handle like voodoo. Yeah. There's something like, ooh, like it has like a mystique to it because it is kind of removed. What is it about Christianity that these studios and companies find so marketable when they're approaching it from a sort of irreverent side. That's a trope we find in the West as well. The whole like the church is evil, God is actually evil thing. That's like a move that a lot of fantasy takes, like metal kind of <laughs> approach too. Yeah. Do you think the devil likes metal? Do you think he's into that kind of thing? Or- I don't know. I kind of think, especially the Satan of like Paradise Lost. I don't see him as being super into metal. I I feel like he'd be into like classical music or something. I don't know. He seems like kind of a snob. I would be willing to say probably like something like in the Hall of the Mountain King. He's probably like high on his playlist. Oh, Fortuna. And of course, he would be listening to Lil Nas X on repeat. Oh, of course. Even though they kill him in the end. Spoiler alert. This mind is constantly attacked. Secret Mystery Club with Mike and Jeremy. Go back there and pick up some of that dirt and worship that if you want to. That's where the life is. Life is. Should we introduce the video? I'm sure everyone who is at least even remotely interested has already seen the video. Yeah, anybody who's even a little bit online has probably seen it. I'm not cool. I don't know popular music, so I don't even know if I'm saying this guy's name correctly. Of course, we're talking about Montero, Call Me By Your Name. Where to start? It has a like a Garden of Eden vibe at the beginning. It, yeah, like a psychedelic Garden of Eden, acid Garden yeah. of Eden. Yeah, it's so just a, like a brief sort of walkthrough of the video is uh, Lil Nas X is in this sort of psychedelic garden and this serpent that looks like it's made of like cooling lava comes and he's he's playing his guitar under this tree and the snake sort of slithers up 
wraps around the tree is listening and then joins in singing and and uh, little Nas X uh, freaks out and starts running away, but he sees visions of this snake-like creature's face all around him until eventually he runs right into the creature and the creature sort of opens a third eye and hypnotizes him and seduces him. He's like imprisoned, he's like on trial in this like tribunal that sort of has like Roman aesthetic to it, but the people in it have those rich people from the Hunger Games sort of look like makeup huge hair that kind of thing and then like i might be like misinterpreting it it seems like the audience gets really upset with him as he starts he keeps singing about like a guy that he's interested in and in the lyrics he talks about how this guy lives in the dark and he is into like this like intense drug scene and stuff and then this tribunal sort of scene lanas x is talking about how he like wants to have sex with this guy the audience gets really upset and it seems like somebody kills him somebody in the audience throws something it hits him in the head and he dies he starts ascending up to heaven as this angelic figure is waiting for him, like reaching out a hand, when suddenly a, a, a giant stripper pole extends up from the depths of hell, and he grabs onto it and starts pole dancing all the way down to hell, where he lands, struts right up to Satan's throne, gives him a lap dance, snaps his neck, takes his horns off his head, puts them on, and then sprouts wings and becomes the new ruler of hell. Yes. I think it's telling that in the Garden of Eden, he calls the place Montero, which is his actual given name. And everyone that we see, except for Satan, I guess, because he's got all that grody makeup. Everyone that we see is him, like throughout each of the scenes. So I'm interpreting this as this is an internal drama that's playing out. In the beginning, we have like state of idyllic innocence almost i'm interpreting the snake as a kind of sexual awakening the first mm-hmm. like forbidden desire so the snake shows up and it looks like cooling lava or something so we got the fires of desire which fits with the snake being kind of like a phallic symbol so he resists the desire because he's afraid of it and then he gives into it now there's judgment And because all of his judges, everyone in the audience is him, he's facing judgment of himself. I'm interpreting rich Hunger Games looking people. It's like the ruling power of the world, sort of. It's like the judgment of civilization, the judgment of society, of like encoded ethics. So he's executed. He goes up and then he sees a winged figure. And then the stripper pole emerges from under him. He grabs it pole dances down to hell, which I see as rejecting the ideas of purity that he's been burdened with. So then with the the lap dance of Satan and then killing Satan, I see that as him embracing the power of his own desire and then taking ownership of that. Like the figure of Satan visually is very cartoonish and almost silly looking and exaggerated, whereas everyone else has his face. Yeah. So it's like the Satan figure isn't even a character. It's just like a weird cartoon that exists in his psyche, which he then destroys and then crowns himself with lordship over his previously forbidden impulses. In some of his tweets and stuff, he's made it clear he didn't decide that he is satanic. Others decided that he is satanic. 
And so this is the story of being assigned that kind of a relationship with Satan. Yeah. It's not something he would take on himself. It's something that was forced upon him. And then his sort of reaction to it, which is to kill that idea of Satan and replace it with one that empowers him, which is exactly what we're seeing in this video, that like seizing of the narrative, similar to a lot of like satanic churches where it's all about taking this narrative that's been used to enslave, persecute, condemn people, and trying to turn it against the power structures that are wielding it. Yeah. That's my interpretation. I feel like our interpretations are really similar, especially the uh, end goal. Maybe the lens that I saw it through was a little different. The symbolism of the beginning of the snake representing that realization of his attraction to men. It is his own face. So he recognizes that it's himself, but it's like a himself that he doesn't recognize that he... See, this is the first little difference in our interpretations, I think, was how you said that the fires on the snake figure were sort of like the fires of like a desire of some kind. I saw it as specifically hell imagery. Oh, interesting. Like before I realized I was gay, I was told that gay was a bad thing and that you would go to hell if you were gay. Mm -hmm. So this like gay identity that's coming up He sees that it's himself bedecked with this hellish, monstrous imagery, and he rejects it and tries to escape. There's like a statue, and as he runs past it, the leaves part, or it turns and reveals its face, and it's him in that snake form. He looks down, there's a flower, and it blooms, and the snake face is in it. He looks up in the clouds, he sees the snake in the clouds with like lightning flashing. That's when he realizes he can't escape it, and so he starts to, he gives into it. Part of the like coming out process, at least back in the day when I was going through all this stuff, they said was like, first you have to come out to yourself before you can come out to anybody else. So that part of the video to me was the, the part where he's coming out to himself. Like he's basically just saying, okay, yes. It first appears like the snake creature is hypnotizing you. It opens this third eye on its forehead, this like glowing purple eye. And then it shows Lil Nas X and he's looking back into it. His own eyes have that same purple glow purple gay connection make of it what you will so it seems like this creature is hypnotizing him but i think it's more of like a he's recognizing in the creature what's already in himself basically the creature looking him in the face and saying like i'm you you're me you have to face it now and he is facing it and then he sort of falls to the ground and the creature looms over him but he's the one who pulls the creature in for a kiss yeah. It looks like a scene where the creature is sort of overpowering him, but to me, that's him accepting it. The next scene is when he's in that sort of tribunal. He's in shackles. Lil Nas X stands out the most. He's wearing pink. He's got pink hair in this scene, fluffy, flowing clothes that he's wearing. Everybody around him is in blue. One of the like judges has a huge fan, and it's made of denim, and all their clothes are made of denim. They have these long nails that look like they're denim nails as well. What I saw in that scene was he sort of is marked in this society as being this feminine thing, a man who's not wearing blue, who's not wearing denim. So all of these figures that are around him, I saw as like societal expectation of what it is to be masculine. He's being put on trial by the arbiters of masculinity because he dares to stand out and be different. And if you look at these people, they're wearing denim, they're wearing blue. They also have these huge elaborate wigs, lots of jewelry, long fingernails, elaborate makeup. I saw that sort of as a, yeah, masculinity is a performative thing as well. 
it's just as much of a pageantry as women being expected to do up their hair and put on makeup and wear nails and stuff. Men are also expected, like, you need to act this way, you need to dress this way. Masculinity is just as much drag as femininity is. Like, why are you, who are also putting on a performative identity, judging this person just because their identity is different? The lyrics during that part are very much, no, I want to have sex with this man. Pretty explicitly, like, unrepentant, this is what I want to do and I'm not going to change my mind about it. Society gets upset that he's unrepentant, people start throwing things, and it looks like one of the things that's thrown by the audience hits him. For the next part, he's floating up to heaven, and the only thing I could really interpret it as was that moment of choice. Do you say, okay, yeah, maybe I need to get on the correct path that society is putting me on to purify myself and try to quote-unquote fix this? And when he's floating upward, he has this sheen on him, like he's covered in a layer of something. It's like he's shrink-wrapped in something kind of sterile and strange. But then the stripper pole comes up, sort of like an invitation. The moment he grabs onto the stripper pole, that layer is gone. He's got this long braided red hair, and he's just wearing underwear and and like thigh-high, high-heeled boots. It's very much a, a moment of rejecting that societal imposition of the way somebody's quote-unquote supposed to be and choosing, no, this is who I am. And then when he goes down to hell, that's sort of where our interpretations, I think, reconvene. It's very much a moment of taking that identity, this is who I am. If society is going to call me the devil, if they're going to say that I belong in hell, then yeah, I'm going to sit on the fucking throne unrepentantly and just saying, yeah, this is me. Take it or leave it. I can take your condemnation and I can use it as a power. And now the power relation between us has changed. Now you're afraid of me. Yes. Yes, exactly. You wanted to keep me in my place, but now I'm freaking you out. And I'm fine with who I am now. So where does that leave you? I really liked your interpretation. You caught a lot of details I missed. I loved that performative nature of masculinity, overdone denim everywhere, but yet that's still like a costume that everyone's wearing. Yeah. And he's being persecuted for refusing to conform to the same role that everyone else is playing. That's fabulous. As I was flipping through, following along with your interpretation, I noticed a new detail, which is that when the stripper pole comes up, and it's just a few frames... It's pointed. Yes. When it comes up, it's like a spear. And so if you follow that, it continues traveling up after it cuts away from, I'll just call it the angel, because it appears like the angel, by piercing this concept of divinity that you're being judged against. You're now unifying and connecting these two parts of yourself. Just in terms of mythic symbolism, the stripper pole becomes like an axis mundi. And so he pierces the angel, but in doing that, he can now travel between them freely. It's like Gnostic or shamanic almost, the idea that you can ascend to what's above and then descend to what's below with the new knowledge, which he seems to get. You know, he grabs a stripper pole and instantly his identity changes and suddenly his hair is long and fluid and there's motion to it. He gets bigger almost, like the idea that If you're trying to fit society's standards for you, you diminish yourself, you shrink into these expectations. But if you reject that, you can become expansive. 
Yeah, and at the very end, when he puts the horns on, he sprouts wings. The shape of the wings is identical to the angelic figure that you see in that scene. So it's very much like a mirroring, like, I was on this path floating up to maybe become an angelic figure that society wanted me to be. I've come down the opposite way, but I still became this angel on my own terms. I think this is a very good video. I don't know what this straight experience is growing up, but I saw this sequence early on where he's running through the garden trying to escape this serpent figure, and he keeps seeing the figure's face everywhere he looks. There's something that you'll see if you ever dip your toe in like gay Twitter. People will bring it up every now and then. They'll call it the aisle, like the underwear aisle at Target or whatever, like a place where you go and you're like this little gay kid and you don't really know what's going on. And you know, all you know is you need to hide this. And you're like in an innocuous place that for anybody else is just like, okay, we're shopping for whatever. And you turn your head and there's like, oh, there's like the fitness magazine with some dude on it. Look away from that. It's a temptation. Oh, you're buying some underwear, start of the new school year and you're getting new clothes, whatever. You're in this aisle with like your mom or whatever. And constant temptations and things that you need to like avoid or pretend you don't have any interest in bombarding you from all sides. I personally saw that reflected in that sequence in the garden part of the video. In the final sequence, when he approaches Satan's throne, there's a pentagram on the floor with a Latin inscription that translates to, they condemn what they do not understand. I also noticed the Garden of Eden analog is pink. Yeah. So his like natural state of innocence is this pink color that later marks him as a divergence. And you can't see a lot of it, but everywhere around this pink paradise is blue. It's almost like paradise becomes lost, of course, but he still preserves some of what was special about that place in him, but it becomes something that he's judged for. I might just be projecting too much of my own experience out of this. I don't know how universal it is to other LGBTQ people. When I first started realizing that I was having these feelings toward men, for me, it was just like, oh, this is cool. I like this. And then when I put two and two together, oh, this is that gay thing people told me about. This is a hell thing. I need to reject it. It was only once I made that connection with something that had been taught to me that I started to try to repress it and and think of it as this thing that needed to be changed or removed. And I kind of think that now that you're pointing out, oh, his natural state in the garden is a sort of pink paradise. I kind of see the same thing going on. He's playing a pink guitar in the pink grass beneath his purple tree, living his life being himself until this hellish imagery confronts him. And then he has this horrible realization. He drops the pink guitar to the ground and starts fleeing. I can't not interpret it with that lens. I mean, this is clearly a very personal song and video for him. You know, he's made it clear that he put a lot of himself into it. This imagery is very intentional to the point where there was a tweet like, I'm going to be disappointed if people don't read a bunch of Illuminati symbolism into it, (laughs) taking the satanic panic energy and just like empowering yourself from it. Call me whatever you want, but I got the big fucking stripper pole. So who's in charge now? Yeah, I got the stripper pole that impales angels. I'm on a throne. Say whatever you want. Actually, now that I think about it, if we are going to interpret the stripper pole spear as piercing the angel and he kills the devil, then he's just gotten rid of the whole hierarchy that's being imposed. But anyway, in that Garden of Eden scene, there is a statue. The like crumbled statue? 
Well, there's like a giant crumbled statue, which is also really interesting. And maybe we'll have to come back to that. It shows this other statue with his face, but it's got the weird lips that the snake has. The serpent face, yeah. Yeah, it has a third eye that's open that has that same purple to it. And then you can see what looks like the branches or a vine of that sort of tree growing around it. But the figure looks happy. It's almost like you're seeing what's there and then an alienated distortion of what's there. The snake becomes a scary figure with this hellish imagery, and that's his loss of innocence. But before that moment, that same figure was all around him. And the statue with the snake head has legs. Which makes me think of, in the story of the Garden of Eden in Genesis, the serpent is cursed with slithering around on its belly as if it had actual limbs before that. And the fact that there's like the ruins of a fallen civilization around him makes me wonder, is this like a new garden sort of thing? Is this like a new emergence of that state? What do you make of that? I think you're right. It's like these signs and symbols were already all around him. And he didn't see them as bad or scary or to be condemned until the one appeared that had the hellish imagery on it. Then it immediately zooms in on that tree with the Greek inscription. According to this Reddit, reference to Plato's Symposium, section 191a, lines 5 through 6. So in the beginning, when they were cut in two, they yearned for each other's half. That's what it says on the tree? That's what this Redditor says it says on the tree. But since they give a specific location, it'd be pretty easy to fact check. The original humans supposedly connected like a wheel. Zeus freed their power and cut them in two, so they were to wander the earth forever looking for their partner. (laughs) Yeah, very good video. I like it. I like it. Jeremy, I really like this video. Where does the devil wage his attack? I want to talk about this paper I wrote in school that I was really strongly reminded of watching the video. It plays right into how the imagery of Satan is being used. Definitely. So I was in a linguistics class, semantics and pragmatics. For the final project in this class, we had to take a text and we had to do a discursive analysis of it, look at the social trends, ideas, concepts, memes that this text touches on, and analyze the language use and how it connects to these discourses, these social philosophical conversations that society just engages in by nature of being society. And what, if anything, the author is trying to achieve through that use of language to connect to these social discourses. And I chose some BuzzFeed article, somebody talking about around like spring, summer of 2017, there was a big meme online that the Babadook was gay because somebody posted a screenshot of Netflix where the Babadook was listed under LGBT movies. And so this guy, J.P. Brammer, who is the guy that uh, made the goat poster that I sent you for Christmas, he wrote this paper talking about what is this Babadook meme? Why are gay people embracing the Babadook? 
And by extension, why do gay people love villains like your Jafars, your Ursulas? In my analysis of his article, I talked about how he sets up an identity for himself where he's this typical millennial, like he got laid off from a job, had to move back in with his parents, was feeling really depressed, fell down an internet rabbit hole of cryptids and monsters and creatures, and eventually sort of embraced the identity of oh yeah, I was bullied as a kid. I was made to fear the people around me and question myself and sort of try to hide myself away. But the Mothman doesn't try to hide himself. The, the Flatwoods monster doesn't try to like hide themselves. They just are what they are and people can deal with it or not. They don't care. Why don't I be the same? And throughout the paper, he sort of uses gay slang and references to like gay culture. And I argue in my paper that yeah, he's explaining to the BuzzFeed reader, oh, this is the Babadook meme, and isn't it crazy how gay people sometimes identify with monsters? Ha ha ha. But underneath all that, by his use of gay slang and touching on gay topics in a specific way, while also creating this sympathetic identity for himself, something that the reader can relate to, he sort of is inviting gay readers, LGBTQ readers, to follow him on the journey that he describes himself going on. Basically, like, I was just like you until I met a monster online who told me that I could be a monster too. Wouldn't you like to be a monster? Monsters are strong. They're scary. People leave them alone. You can claim this power for yourself. And then what do I say here? The reader, just as the author was guided into the world of monsters by the Mothman, the reader has also been on a journey being guided by a monster while reading the article. And I say, Brammer himself, it turns out, is less the Virgil to our Dante than the Pennywise to our Georgie. He's been a monster this whole time. He has undergone this transformation, and he's invited the gay reader to also undergo this transformation. Just like in the Lil Nas X video, he presents a moment at the end of, you can go back to the mainstream, you can ascend to the heavenly figure over there and be a bland, boring stone person in the auditorium with those denim people. Or you can become a monster with people like me, and stand in your truth and embrace your opposition to the systems that try to oppress you. Mm. That's really interesting. There's a lot to unpack with monsters. A monster is something that you're afraid of, almost by definition. Like, an elephant was once called a monster, I'm sure. (laughs) You you know, like, when encountered by people that weren't familiar with elephants, what is that? It's a fucking monster. Mm -hmm. You have sea monsters on all those old nautical maps and stuff. Like, I don't know, some scary shit's over there. So it's like, a monster is something that's scary and unfamiliar. There's like a sense of danger. Yeah. I don't think you'd call something a monster if it wasn't... Like, nobody talks about cherubim and seraphim being monsters. Even though, as they're described in the Bible... They're horrifying. They're pretty fucking horrifying. Yeah. But no one's out there calling a cherub a monster. In fact, aesthetically, the church seems so uncomfortable with its proximity to monstrosity that cherubim become tiny little harmless babies. Yeah. There's no way King Kong's out there like, I'm a monster. You know, he's like normal for his giant ape species that he came from. Moth is like a normal giant moth, right? It's like not mm-hmm. monstrous to himself. It's just monstrous to everyone that doesn't understand him and doesn't, can't, or won't have a more wholesome relationship to them. So they just become this rejected part 
like the image of Godzilla and kaiju fighting and like toppling buildings and stuff. Those buildings are not made for them. They are not kaiju scale. There's no room for them in these buildings for a Mothra or a Godzilla or something like that. The way that the world is set up is set up excluding them. So all they can do, apparently, is pose a threat. But they're not trying to pose a threat. Godzilla, at least originally, is not out there knocking over buildings for fun. Like, no one chooses to be gay. People are gay. And then in societies that don't accept that, they're told they're monsters. They're told there's no place for them in this society. And so, you know, they're perceived as a threat. But they're only a threat because there's no place for them. Right. And they're not even a threat. We're not even a threat. In the article that I analyzed, the author talks about, we're not the monsters. Like, society calls us the monsters. They try to put us away. Like, he talks about at the end of Disney movies, if you're straight, you get rewarded by hooking up with a hot person of the opposite sex. If you're a a gay villain, like your Jafars, your Scars, your Ursulas, you get sent to the bottom of the sea, locked away in a lamp. Society tries to do that to gay people. But then you've got actual monsters. The real monsters are running the show. Yeah. So if the society that's actually being run by monsters is calling us monsters, hell yeah, I'm going to be a monster that is opposed to the society that is being run by the actual monsters. I'm going to embrace this identity that they fear because the monsters running that society should fear something. Yes. That connects back perfectly with people who embrace the Church of Satan or the Satanist label. Yeah. I mean, there is a minority that really is like, no, the devil's real. I'm worshiping a literal devil kind of thing. But the majority, it's just like, well, you're telling me that I'm satanic because I'm not one of you. I'm not willing to reduce myself to what your expectations of me are that I don't agree with, that I don't feel I should conform to. So if you're telling me that makes me satanic, then yeah, I'm satanic. Ooga booga, run the fuck away. Leave me alone. Let me live my fucking life. Yeah. What kind of scary ass symbols do I need to adorn myself with for you to fuck off and leave me alone? If I have a choice between being harassed by you constantly and told that I have to fulfill your expectations or looking scary as shit to you and you're afraid of me, but at least you'll fuck off and leave me in peace, like I'd rather take that. 100%. That's what everyone who is upset right now about this music video doesn't understand. He's not choosing to be satanic. The only role in your conception of the world is for him to be some kind of devil. That's the only role he has that isn't to just disappear. That's how he'll relate to you guys. Yeah, he'll take the label you're putting on him. And now you're mad that he's doing that? You're the ones that put that on him. Yeah. I want to get back to what you said about the, the real monsters are the ones running the show. Because I think that that's mm. really important, too. I'll add my usual disclaimer. I'm cool with Jesus. I, I think he said some really interesting stuff in these yep. texts as far as we understand them. Given, of course, that they were written after he pieced out by people who never even met him. Look it up if what I said isn't sitting well with you. Uh, anyway, but the history of the church, it's blood-soaked, and that's uncontroversial. Persecuting people, going to war with Islam over the so-called Holy Land, 
all the way to like the Catholic Church is being outed for just shuffling around its known pedophile priests because it would rather preserve its own power structure than atone with what's been allowed to fester inside of itself. Right. It's like an institutionalized form of projection. I can't handle what is within me. So I'm going to elevate myself and make you the bad guy and attack you. Real monsters all look like people. That's their powers, just their ability to blend in, their ability to be two-faced. If you have something that's monstrous because it can't conform, it can't, like Mothra can't put on a Hawaiian shirt and some sunglasses and be like, hey guys, it's me, Mothra, what's going on? (laughs) Hello, fellow humans. I'll take some human food if you're serving it up. 15 tons of burgers, please. Proboscis comes out, looks around, it's like, oh. Um, (laughs) I don't know. I'm just agreeing with you. I'm I'm just like passionately agreeing with you, I guess. Yeah. Um, Thank you. Uh, (laughs) So Satan. That guy. Basically, it just seems to come down to you're good if you follow the rules I give you and you're bad if you don't. And so for someone who accepts that as truth... The mindset might be like, well, why don't you just follow the rules and we'll all be happy? But for the people who don't, it's often because they would have to reject things that they know themselves. They would have to reject their own ability to perceive or even their own ability to know their own body. Desire is a somatic thing. It's not just thoughts that come up in your head. It's something that you feel. Yeah. It's easy for heterosexual people who want to be heteronormative and police human sexuality. It's easy to be like, well, look, I can follow the rules. It's simple. Like, just do what I do. They don't have those experiences. A dude who has desire for another dude, all you have to do is just perceive your own sensation to just be embodied in yourself to any degree. And if you're told you have to reject that in order to follow the rules, you're being told you have to reject yourself. This is something I heard a lot in church, this condemnation of the idea of believing in yourself. And I will agree that the whole believe in yourself, trust your heart kind of thing has become this like commercialized cliche, like a Disney moral. It's like saccharine, yeah. Yeah, you don't have to think about it and it doesn't really mean anything. I think it does mean anything. If you want to get real about it, it means be your own experience. Don't reject your own experience. I've heard that described as like, oh, you're rejecting God's authority and you're establishing yourself as an authority. I don't think so. For starters, I don't have access to God's sensation. I don't have access to God's like field of consciousness. I only have my own field of consciousness, and if I have to give that up to conform, I'll just be walking dead, right? Yeah. And if you're telling me to place a higher priority on this outside perspective that you have to imagine so that you can judge your life and try to conform accordingly, you're being told to reject your own experience, your own being, in order to follow an idea that someone else is giving you. Embracing an idea or an abstraction over the richness of embodied experience. It doesn't have to be me versus God. I really think if there's anything out there you want to call God, which isn't language that I usually use, I don't think you get that by turning your back on your own 
experiential reality, your own subjectivity. It's by going into it, by sinking into it, by connecting and seeing what's under it, where it's coming from, finding the source of that. It doesn't mean I'm going to enshrine my own understanding and worship myself. It just means being who you are. Like you said, like I'm not worshiping myself. I'm just living my life and being true to my experiences and making informed decisions for myself, embracing who I am, my identity, my experiences. That's not worship. Maybe means I'm respecting myself because I'm not ignoring things that I've experienced and know to be true for myself. I'm saying, okay, yes, I acknowledge that and I accept it as part of who I am because it's part of my lived experience. Yeah. Hell itself, for that idea, the idea of hell to be useful at all, it's not as a literal place that you go to if you don't choose the right religion. To me, it's referring to the experience of something that hurts because it's rejected. It's a part of you that's either repressed or severed, and so is in pain. There's the pain of being severed from part of yourself. It's like, why demonize things? That's how you get demons. Like, that's how this works (laughs) psychologically, right? Why send part of yourself to hell? That's how you get hell. That's how you get the experience of hell. Was it Jung who talked about like the shadow? Yeah. That video game Persona 5, the primary conceit of those games based in Jungian thought. Each of the protagonists encounters their shadow and they react to it with complete revulsion. And they say, that's not me. I reject it completely. And that gives the shadow power. It transforms into like a boss monster that you have to defeat. But it's like what you said. If you see something that exists, just is what it is. It's just there and existing. If you reject it, you have just given it that power. Right. And have elevated it to this status where it now is something that is going to try to overwhelm you because you have made it into that thing. Yes. Like, should I really be attributing to me, myself, my personal lived experience, that level of monstrosity, of demonism? Like, where does that impulse come from? I don't see it as useful. Yeah, I suspect what's really going on is once you're told you have to conform to this shape, these prescribed rules, And no one can, like no Christian, despite all their best efforts, is a perfect Christian. Right. And it's almost like those who try the hardest, there's like self-sabotage that happens. But if you're trying to fit that mold, the self becomes a threat. Like your actual true being becomes threatening because you start seeing ways that you're diverging from what's being prescribed for you. And so, if you have nowhere else to go, if you're like, well, I can't be in me because me, I'm horrified by because it's not like doing the thing that I know it's supposed to. All I can do is embrace an abstraction, embrace a symbol of something that makes me feel like I'm okay. You see that neurosis being expressed in all these different ways. But ultimately, Jesus's whole thing was supposed to be about reconciliation. The message in the Bible of Jesus came to redeem everybody, but then the Bible ends with, if you're not part of the super special club, you don't count as part of the everybody that Jesus came to redeem and you're going to hell forever no matter what. 
there's other apocalypses than just John of Patmos's apocalypse that got, you know, added into the Christian canon at the last minute. There's other revelations that are like, okay, yeah, no one has to be in hell because Jesus reconciled everyone with God. Like, that was the point. So, chill out. I feel like we can connect this with, since we are talking about Jesus and hell, mentions of Gehenna. Gehenna was like a valley. Isn't it like where they threw garbage? It's like a big burning garbage heap. Yep, the garbage heap. Yeah, and they burned it. Yeah. So Jesus does mention Gehenna a few times in the Gospels. But it's almost like be a garbage person, go to the garbage can kind of thing. Like if if you're going to be trashy, I'm going to put you in the trash. The idea that it has to be this literal place is just seems like a huge misreading. What about a literal person of Satan? How useful is that? Earliest examples of the Satan figure. He was an employee of God. (laughs) He was somebody who was on God's team who basically would fly around and say, like, this person doesn't look like they're doing it right. He was like Dwight from The Office. Kind of. He was just like an annoying dude who like flew around like mm-hmm. pointing at people. <laughs> and that somehow turned into like nega god. Like, I don't... He got promoted from adversary for the celestial manager to adversary to the celestial manager. It was a big step up for him. Yes. Yeah, I mean, the figure that's being interpreted as Satan, the Garden of Eden story, it's a fucking snake. There's no indication that it has any significance beyond that. That's a later reinterpretation. Then the, the figure of the adversary shows up. It's clearly a title. It's a role that a particular angel fulfills. There's no indication that it's a fallen angel. And this is like back when... God is being conceived as the ruler of this celestial court where yeah, the court of the gods, right? He's like the big God among the gods. The word of the day is henotheism. Look it up. Yeah. And then, you know, then it just turns into a boogeyman yeah. and like boogeymen are convenient. I guess if you want to make sure kids like brush their teeth, like brush your teeth or the boogeyman will get you. Or if you want to control people. The title of adversary starts to become a specific character, even in the Gospels, where this tempting angel appears before Jesus. I'm not seeing any indication that he's like, what's up, Jesus? It's me, the villain of the story. It's just like, it almost seems like a reemergence of the adversary role. Like, everyone's getting tested. If all humans are getting tested in this way then Jesus is getting tested this way because he's fully human. But there's no indication that like no one should be tested in this way and that it's like a bad thing that's contrary to God's plan. Yeah, it reminds me of Maya's role in the story of the Buddha. Maya shows up and tries to tempt the Buddha into not going out into the world and spreading what he's learned. Yeah. Maya is also a god. Maya has a role to play. In the same way that the accuser in Judaism Christianity is there to test the faith of these people, it's a universal figure across multiple cultures, religions, and archetype. This is all why I like that parable of the Buddha having tea with Mara so much. Because it's oh, like. Was I saying Maya? I meant Mara, didn't I? I mean, they're really similar concepts. So, like, yeah, okay, well, oh, Buddha, why are you having tea with Mara? Isn't he the bad guy? And it's just like, well, Mara's gonna Mara. 
That's what yeah. Mara's do. Like, he's not a threat if you're not taking him seriously, if you're not listening to him and being like, you know what? You make a great point. You're just chilling out, having tea. <laughs> Don't we all have friends that we tend to not agree with the things they say? But it's just like, well, there's a place for you in my life. So I'll have tea with you. I'll hang out with you from time to time. That doesn't mean I'm going to entirely reject you and banish you and demonize you as this grand celestial cosmic evil force that we all have to reject in this total way. Maybe there's something in all of us that tempts us to do things that we don't want to do at another level of ourselves. Maybe there's things we rationally want to do or be, but we have, you know, all these other drives that are trying to take us in a different direction. I can connect that with the concept of resistance in The War of Art, that Stephen Pressfield book about writing and the writing process. Mm. He hammers this point home again and again of resistance. Anytime you have a mission, anytime you have a purpose, anytime you have a goal that you're striving for, whether that's, you know, a spiritual goal or something very mundane, you're always going to encounter resistance because that's the nature of the world. And it's convenient in the same way that we personify everything we want to have a relationship with to make that into a character, to draw a little smiley face on it so we can relate to it because we almost have to anthropomorphize things to relate to them. Why should we direct our ire toward that thing? Why should we be fearful of that thing? That's what's giving it power. That's what's turning into this apparently huge thing. It's not the thing itself. Yeah, it's exactly. It's not the thing itself. It's what we imbue it with. A volcano can erupt. It can cause damage. People can lose their lives from a volcano blowing up. That doesn't make a volcano evil. It exists. Should it be interacted with in specific ways? Yeah, maybe. But you don't need to hate it. You don't need to try to blow it up. Like, yeah. It, it's just there. <laughs> I'm just imagining, like, you know what? That volcano is looking awfully scary. Let's just get rid of that fucker. <laughs> yeah. I think that's a perfect metaphor because it also like, well, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of how volcanoes work and what the (laughs) effect of that ultimately will be. It's like trying to blow up the fucking volcano. I don't like this. This thing poses a threat to me because under some circumstances, it could cause this effect. I'm afraid of that. I don't want this thing to exist anymore. So let's blow up the fucking volcano. And then what are we left with? We're left with a giant crater with magma oozing from it. (laughs) And now you have to deal with all of this unrestrained, primal, subterranean force. And then it's like, oh my God, Satan is bigger and scarier than we ever thought it would be. (laughs) Like, motherfucker, the whole core of the planet is made of magma, you dick. Yeah. There are some systems, of course, like Zoroastrianism comes to mind, that are inherently dualistic. One is evil, one is good. Christianity has become that. It wasn't always, and Judaism certainly wasn't for quite some time, apart from like us versus them, good versus bad, black versus white. I don't particularly see any other way to engage with a like, dualistic system like that. The whole adversarial heaven versus hell, Horov Mazda versus Angra Mainu, like that kind of dualism. If you're trying to build a cultural narrative to make your society function, if you need a mythology to give people a direction, it's incredibly parsimonious. If your mythology is God's in heaven and everything's good, 
Like there's no conflict. There's no dualism. It's ultimately everything is what it is. You're not going to build cities. Right. You're just going to peace out and have a good time as good as you can, you know. But to build a city, you need a conflict. Something has to triumph over something else. If we never had Christianity or Judaism or Islam or whatever, you know, Abrahamic monotheisms, and, you know, a religion was started today to fill that place, we would all be gathering in our churches talking about how we have to help the Avengers because Thanos is coming. Right. That's a motivator, right? Like, Thanos is the bad guy. I don't want him to snuff out half the population. So we got to do our part and like buy Tony Stark's products because he's rich. That's why he's able to build robot suits. So buy Stark Industries and that's how you help the Avengers. Well, now you certainly are talking about a religion born from the modern era. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Give your money to the billionaire. (laughs) It'll help. Absolutely. Did you see Elon Musk wants to make a Jurassic Park? Did you see that? I'm like, can we, can we, can we like get school supplies for our teachers? We don't need velociraptors. We need help. <laughs> we don't need a Jurassic Park. We need healthcare. Isn't there literally like a panel from like a Spider-Man comic where there's a billionaire <laughs> Spider-Man saying like, you could have used your money to end world hunger. And the billionaire's like, I don't want to end world hunger. I want to clone dinosaurs or something. <laughs> like, it's literally comical at this point. And like, who's weirder, Elon Musk or the people who like worship at his yeah, throne? Like, the Musk simps. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't understand that at all. There's some Musk fan club that wants to turn April 20th into Elon Musk Day. That's 420. Okay, so he goes on Joe Rogan and lights up one joint and suddenly you want to rebrand 420 as being about one particular person because you simp for that billionaire so hard? Fuck you, man. He doesn't own weed. He didn't invent it. Fuck off. Right. Just like he didn't invent his fucking cars. He's just a boss. He has teams of engineers to do it. He's not a fucking engineer. Speaking of the devil, Elon Musk. (laughs) (sighs) I really like this volcano thing. It's such a perfect symbol because like (laughs) a volcano is just something that forms because the earth is full of magma and you don't get a planet earth unless you have a molten core. So you have volcanoes so that you can have a planet that you can exist on. They're not separate. Like, one comes with the other. You can't somehow have a planet with a molten core and no volcanoes. And also, no volcanoes means there goes, like, our mountain ranges for the most part, right? Like, there goes a bunch of island chains and all the cultures that grew around those island chains. It's part of the whole creative process. If you look at it holistically, if you have more information, if you take a step back and see it in context... You see the necessity of it. You see how it fits into the whole. It's only through illusion that you get that sense of dualism. If you fall into the trap of that illusion, that dualism, and start to see these things as evil, and you take measures to eradicate it, it can very quickly lead to something much, much worse than the thing you were afraid of. Yeah. If it is a projection, the more you're fighting against that projection, the more it's growing in yourself the more you may discover yourself behaving monstrously. I don't know where this actually came from because I heard it in so many different little cute stories in so many different contexts. But the idea that there's two wolves inside of us, a good one and a bad one, 
and the one that wins is the one you feed. Yep. Okay. I understand the utility of that. That's like saying what you put your attention on is going to grow, is going to be energized, is going to be empowered. And what you don't put your attention on isn't. That's fine. The problem is this like there's a good and a bad wolf. Bro, there's just wolves. There's no good wolf. (laughs) There's no bad wolf. If there's a wolf and you don't like how it's acting, first of all, maybe it's hungry. Maybe it's not a good wolf and a bad wolf. Maybe it's like a wolf that you've been feeding because that's what you thought was the good thing to do. And then the bad wolf that's misbehaving because you haven't been fucking feeding it, right? Like right. wolves just being wolves. Or maybe that wolf was kicked around. Maybe that wolf's going through shit. Maybe it's been traumatized. Maybe it's just trying to protect itself. You dicks. I'm on team bad wolf. Yeah. Ooh, Doctor Who. Um, I mean, and you, like you'll find stuff in the Bible too about like separating the sheep from the rams or whatever. It's like, well, why does God hate rams? Like, well, no, that's not the point. Good and bad exists, but it's always relative to the context. If you're foraging for mushrooms, there's good mushrooms and bad mushrooms, right? Relative to what your action is and what your desired outcome is. That's just a way of saying, I want this thing and I don't want this thing, right? It doesn't mean that there's some like spiritual quality to this thing that makes it inherently bad or inherently evil or or anything like that. Mushrooms are just mushrooms. It's only good or bad because you're bringing your agenda to it. So we can still talk about good and bad in conventional terms. We can still say this is good, this is bad. I don't want to eat that, it's bad. I want to eat that, it's good. This food is good. As long as we don't take these conventions that we're using as some kind of ultimate truth. Because we're not children, we have to have this adult perspective I think you hit on it perfectly. We're not children. Uh, apologies to any child listeners, I suppose. Stop. Stop listening. Yeah. <laughs> Play Pokemon. God damn. Yeah, I'm, I, guys, I just started playing Pokemon Platinum again. It's great. Anyway, uh, do magic, oppose Christian supremacy, question authority. Fuck around and find out, I guess. Fuck around and find out. I, I think like the pragmatic spiritual approach is always fuck around and find out. That's just part of the journey. Are you familiar with the Yazidi people? I'm sort of superficially familiar. I think it's, at least on the surface, seems pretty cool. Yeah, it's interesting. The little peacock angel. Yeah, so the, the peacock angel, Melek Taus. Melek Taus. Melek Taus. And they're like the analog to their Garden of Eden narrative, yeah. which also appears in Islam, which they're more closely connected to. Islamic culture, Islamic traditions. Yeah. The difference is Milek Taus in hell sees the suffering souls and cries for them, and the fires of hell are extinguished and they are free. And I love that because what's the difference between these characters? What's the difference between the adversary that's always the bad guy and the adversary that becomes a hero is empathy. Maybe the non Yazidi version. Satan's in hell and he's looking around, you know, the, the literary character Satan or uh, Iblis or whatever yeah. is looking around and like, you know what? Look at all these losers down here. Fuck them. They sure chose bad. Now they're down here with me. And uh, that's you, fine. You'll be in hell for all eternity. What happens when you look at people and their suffering and show compassion for them? Then the fires are extinguished. Ugh, fuck.
You know what this means? What does this mean? In order for us to be internally consistent. What? We have to empathize with Elon Musk. Oh, no. (laughs) I'm sure he's suffering, too. Still think he acts like a dick. Maybe that's what happens when you grow up as a wealthy white person in apartheid South Africa. Maybe that fucks you up. I'm sure he's gotten a lot of paper cuts from his bed of dollar bills. <laughs> I'm sure those emeralds he played with as a kid were quite heavy to carry around. <laughs> I'm not perfect. I'm sorry. I want to get out ahead of the musk, the muscovites. Please don't come at us. I will not respond. You know what? Come at me on Twitter. I'll block you faster than you can fucking tweet at me. I don't give a fuck. I'm not going to argue with you. What am I going to get out of that? Yeah. All right. I, we solved it. Yep. We, we cracked it. We solved Satan. Thank you, Lil Nas X. Let's, let's pull dance down. Those have been our secrets. You are now an insider. Welcome to the Secret Mystery Club. If the unconscious has something to communicate, it'll tend to try to communicate symbolically. In order to make sense of this, you kind of have to work with the images and see what they reveal to you. It was like a pretty strong recurring nightmare. This black, featureless sphere that would just hover ominously. But I knew that if anything touched or interacted with it, it destroyed the world this thing appeared in the dream suddenly it was a nightmare and i had to get out i'm glad we're getting into the spooky dream territory when i was using this active imagination technique just now i actually moved in that opposite direction i went toward this thing and suddenly i can tell it is distinctly an eye it perceives me directly and the dream immediately ends. What you're describing is an apocalyptic thing. The word apocalypse literally means an uncovering. As a person with an ego, it's sort of terrifying to have that barrier fall, being fully exposed for everything that you've tried to hide from everyone else. Music this episode has been Dreamscape by Density and Time, simple by Glass Boy, and The Dark Arts by John Graham links, licensing, and other details in the show notes. Visit secretmysterypod.com for more secret mysteries. Thank you for listening. Until next time, keep it spooky initiates.